Greetings, dear listeners. Shadi and I were thrilled to have the great Francis Fukuyama on with us this week, author of the new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. We start talking about Trump and the state of American democracy, and then get into the question of liberalism more deeply. How dangerous is the administrative state? Is there a healthy center still available for democratic politics in this country? Is the right beyond redemption? And is there a way out for America? Frank thinks there is. On to the show. so much for joining us. Uh, this has been really a long time coming. Um, really, we've intended to have you on uh, for years. And then, I don't know, time sort of goes quickly. feels like... It does, especially when you're having an epidemic. <laughs> the epidemic. And then uh, it, it also feels like there's just... It's been so much going on, the epidemic. And then, uh, again, the, the our, our ongoing crises uh, with, uh, <laughs> with democracy and Trump... Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a, a not a bad place to start this conversation. Um, just today, I, I saw Damon Linker had a piece uh, in the New York Times that was getting uh, a lot of negative attention uh, for su- suggesting that Trump, uh, you know, ought to be either pardoned or, you know, perhaps not indicted. Uh, your former student, uh, our friend, and we had him on the podcast uh, two weeks ago, Jason Willick. Wrote a similar piece in the in the in the Washington Post, um, with all of this going on, uh, you know, possible indictments, threats of violence, uh, more broadly, this sense that that uh, a good part of the the country is sort of seriously questioning the legitimacy of our institutions. How bad do you think all this is, and is there a way out? Well, uh, yeah, I think that um, it's bad. It's very bad. Uh, it's very bad when a third of your electorate thinks that you have the wrong president, uh, that somebody was elected by fraud, and it's particularly bad when there's nothing to that. Uh, I think it's bad that a lot of these people are armed and, you know, have a increasingly violent turn in their rhetoric, where they think that they're in the midst of an existential crisis for themselves and for the nation. Uh, so I'm very worried about uh, what's going to happen in the United States. Uh, I actually do think that there's a way out of this. I I wrote a, a piece for persuasion on this a couple of weeks ago, and that basically is to win an election. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 it doesn't sound like rocket science, and it isn't, but I do think that um, the Democrats, if they adjust it appropriately, could actually occupy the center of American politics. And I think there's a lot of data indicating that, um, you know, the center is still a a reasonably capacious place. uh, And if they held um, both houses of Congress and the presidency simultaneously, they could actually bring about the kinds of changes that they wanted to under the Biden presidency, but haven't been able to. But unfortunately, the president doesn't seem to be able to really move to the center. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of time to do that. But if he did, I think, you know, that might be a, a way out. Do you, do you think, um, so I guess maybe the, the question there is, uh, 
is is this a question of when you say all the things that uh, the Democrats want to achieve and that Biden hoped to achieve? Uh, we're talking about output legitimacy here, basically to do the kind of policies that they need to do to basically turn things around and show that capacious center that there's a um, that there's a political uh, force in the country that's fighting for them that you could then cohere that. You're not talking about making the kind of institutional changes that some people increasingly uh, among Democrats are saying, like packing the courts and, uh, and, and other sort of things, the filibuster, or, or is it both of those? Well, um, you know, there's plenty of institutional changes I'd like to see, you know, term limits on uh, Supreme Court uh, uh, appointments and ranked choice voting and so forth. Problem is that none of that's going to happen soon enough. Uh, you know that's a long-term project, and you got a chicken and egg problem because you're not going to get to that kind of institutional reform unless you're in control of Congress and the presidency. Uh, and so it's really gaining that control uh, initially that's really uh, that's really critical. And I also don't think at this point that it's really outputs that people are looking for. It seems to me that so much of our polarization is performative and symbolic in nature, and that the um, cultural parts of it are much more important than to a lot of people than uh, actually passing a bill and you know delivering concrete benefits. And that's where I think it would actually be pretty easy for the Democrats to make an adjustment because, you know, well, this may be a, a typical uh, vanity of, a, of an uh, intellectual, but I sort of think that my own preferences are where a lot of swing voters are, <laughs> which is, you know, somewhat center right on economic policy issues. So return to a certain degree of industrial policy, more government intervention, a healthier social safety net, but center right on cultural issues. And that's really where I think the Democrats have screwed up. I mean, they have invested in all of these really dumb ideas like defund the police and a lot of the, the gender identity politics, which really drives people crazy. It really doesn't have anything to do with outputs, uh, but it does serve to symbolize in the minds of a lot of people, you know, what's wrong with the Democratic Party. And so I think if you had that combination, you would be much better positioned to win, you know, Pennsylvania and uh uh, you know, Nevada, Arizona, even Georgia, uh, than the Democrats are right now. And it's worth noting that um, on, on the question of output legitimacy, that Biden has actually done pretty good. And um, readers and listeners will be aware of a piece we published recently by, by James Sutton called The Myth of American Gridlock, where he argues that Congress is better functioning today that it has been at almost any point over the last decade, there's been a series of legislative victories, some of them, some of them with bipartisan support, but a lot of that has simply been obscured and many people don't even seem to know about it, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the CHIPS Act, so on and so forth. But Frank, I think you're exactly right that unfortunately we're at a, at a time where economics are not the primary cleavage at all. And most Americans don't seem to be particularly satisfied or excited by all of this legislation. And it's and 
part of the problem too is that now all the attention is on Trump in light of recent events. And the more Trump is taking up uh, the air that we breathe, the less we're going to be able to pay attention to anything Joe Biden does. So we're we're sort of stuck with this culture war, as you point out. But if the primary cleavage is now along cultural lines, there isn't a lot of incentive for either party to stand down because that's how each party distinguishes itself. Because if economics isn't going to distinguish you, what else do you have left? And that's my real worry. Shadi, I'm I'm not sure that I agree with that. You know, Biden was elected to be a centrist and to be a kind of normal president. And I think that people still would like it if that happened. And I think his problem was he, he... accommodated the left wing of his party way too much in his first year. You know, big spending bills and then the embrace of a lot of these cultural uh, issues. I mean, it, you know, corresponded with all the residue from the George Floyd killing and that it pushed the party to the left. Uh, But I actually think that um, that adjustment could be made. I mean, part of it is I just don't think Biden has been a very effective communicator or politician. One thing Trump understands is that if you're going to take a position like build the wall, you you have to be able to communicate that like in less than a sentence. And you have to say it over and over and over and over again. And I think that Biden, you know, for example, he did say he doesn't believe in defund the police. He said that during the State of the Union. But I'll bet you that if you did a poll and asked, you know, average Americans does, Biden want to defund the police, the majority of them would say, yes, he does, because they're just not hearing the message. And, uh, you know, um, I, I'm coming to think now that actors uh, actually make good presidents because uh, they actually know this kind of basic communication. That's part of the reason Zelensky has been effective. That's part of the reason uh, Reagan was effective or people that act like actors like AMLO, you know, um, uh, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, he gets on the air every single morning at 7 a.m. and basically just talks for an hour. And, you know, he's been an <laughs> awful president. He's just been a, I mean, I, I can't begin to count the ways in which he's been awful for Mexico. He's basically dragging the country back into the middle of the 20th century. But, you know, he's still unbelievably popular because he really knows how to communicate to ordinary people. And that is something that I think uh, Biden has never been all that good at. Um, You know, we were hoping that he would be that way. And I don't really see a whole lot of other Democrats that are particularly good, uh, certainly not Kamala Harris and uh, or any of the, you know, potential Biden replacements. But do you see anyone on the right that could even take that? I mean, again, it's 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 that logic of culture war that is is so so pervasive. I mean, the the entire right seems to have been captured by Trump. I mean, you you we saw uh, Liz Cheney now go down in flames. I mean, clearly she's not going to be quiet. She may she may yet have a run, but even the fact that that you know her going down so uh, so forthrightly in the primaries uh, just points to basically the the lack of traction that 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 kind of discourse on the right has. Um, so, I, I again. Is it is it that 
Is it just that we don't have the talent maybe on the left or also are the incentives sort of not aligned there, uh, even within the Democratic Party itself? Well, you know, there's some recent poll data that actually suggests that preserving American democracy has been rising relative to inflation and a lot of other things. I mean, Biden could get lucky because inflation really seriously has been coming down and it really could cease to be an issue by the time we get to even the November uh, midterms. And I do think that the January 6th committee hearings uh, did, you know, reach a certain group of people, obviously not the real MAGA types who will never be convinced by anything, but, you know, it's again that those swing voters that will uh, determine a state like Pennsylvania that, you know, potentially are uh, reachable. Uh, and I think that, you know, so the, the question about Trump, the Trumpian threat to democracy, I wouldn't say is a cultural issue. Um, you know, that's a much more fundamental kind of values issue. And I do think that, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, but it could be that that committee and Liz Cheney actually did have more of an impact than, you know, than we may recognize uh, at the current uh, moment. But I do think that the Democrats just have to get off the bus with regard to, you know, crime, uh, you know, a certain type of identity politics, uh, and, you know, essentially stop saying dumb things that, that really uh, scare and irritate people. A worst case scenario, Biden doesn't get better as a communicator. The Democratic Party doesn't shift on these cultural issues. And then either Trump or DeSantis or whoever else wins in 2024. Um, you know, you've said before uh, that if we compare who, you know, who's worse, not that that's always the best thing to do, but if we have to look at right-wing illiberalism and left-wing illiberalism or anti-democratic sentiment, the bigger threat comes from the right and by extension, the Republican Party. How, I mean, if the Republican Party wins, do you imagine a scenario where democracy could actually crumble? I mean, obviously the quality of our democracy has been declining, but I think democratic decline is a different question than the foundations of democracy being in some sense fatally undermined. And I know it's hard for us as Americans to actually imagine a scenario like that. Well, to be fair, a lot of folks on the left do imagine that scenario on a regular basis. I have trouble imagining it. So I'm curious at this point, um, and then maybe we can use that to kind of get to some of the bigger questions about liberalism that you discuss in your book. But this is maybe more focused on the question of democracy and respecting democratic outcomes, which is a little bit different than the focus on liberalism, although we can talk about how intertwined they are in a moment. Well, actually, I do think that the big Republican threat is not to democracy or the principle of democracy, but to liberalism, that is to say, respect for rules. I think that um, there are two very specific and related fears uh, that I have if the Republicans actually get the White House back in 2024. The first is basically the weaponization of the Justice Department. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing that happen. I do not believe, by the way, that Merrick Garland is politicizing 
the Justice Department. I actually think that he really needs to, you know, follow uh, the law in this particular case. Uh, uh, we'll have to see about the January 6th stuff, whether there's enough, you know, to prosecute Trump. But, um, but that's just a response to a prior uh, politicization by Trump. And I think that already, you know, you get Kevin McCarthy and other people saying that if they get back the House, they're going to start uh, subpoenaing Democrats and opening up investigations, you know, based on absolutely nothing. And so that's, uh, that's a real kind of weak democracy deterioration, you know, where you actually no longer have a neutral rule of law. Uh, but, you know, the law is really regarded as a uh, simply as a political weapon. The other thing that I am super concerned about has to do with Schedule F, which is this little recognized um, but extremely important initiative that was undertaken right at the end. It was done in October of 2020, right before the election, uh, where basically the uh, administration issued an executive order creating a new category uh, into which they wanted to place all civil servants that would allow them to basically be uh, held as at-will employees, meaning they could be fired with virtually no procedural guarantees, you know, en masse. And, you know, the planning for this has actually gone pretty far. I, th this matters to me a lot because in my book, Political Order and Political Decay, you know, I wrote about what I regarded as, as one of the most important institutional evolutions that takes place in a liberal democracy. And it really has no, nothing to do with either liberal institutions nor with democracy per se, but actually with the state, uh, which is the modernization of a state by creating a bureaucracy that is professional, well-trained, nonpartisan, and actually trusted uh, you know, to do the bulk of the delivery of the things that people want out of a democracy. The United States was very, very late at this. You know, this really happened in Britain with the Trevelyan North Coke reforms in the mid 19th century. The French created, you know, ANA and the administrative structures and schools supporting that. You know, you had the Hardenberg reforms um, uh, in Prussia that led to all of these countries becoming modern states, you know, with highly qualified, uh, you know, well-trained bureaucracies. The United States didn't get around to this until the passage of the Pendleton Act uh, in 1883. And um, we've never had a really European style or Japanese Korean style professional bureaucracy uh, of the sort that other liberal democracies have had. To this day, we have, you know, like four to 5,000 political appointees that change with every administration. Um, I think what I would like to do is reduce that to a couple dozen. Uh, but the Republicans want to do the opposite. They basically want to make everybody from dog catcher, you know, up to cabinet secretary, uh, a political appointee so that they can put their, you know, their friends in power. And that basically rolls us back to the situation of Andrew Jackson, you know, who was the godfather of the patronage system or the spoil system that made American government like the most corrupt of any modernizing uh, democracy in the 19th century. Uh, and so I think all of those, and, and in fact, this stuff about Schedule F is going to happen whether Trump is there or not. 
you know, he may be one of the biggest advocates, but there's a whole bunch of conservatives that have been, you know, basically drooling over the possibility that they could fire, you know, all of the Anthony Fauci's and all the people that they really dislike, you know, in one night of the long knives. And I think that that will happen. And it doesn't destroy American democracy. It basically sets us back to, you know, the year 1876, uh, uh, you know, when we had very weak government and very incompetent government. So, Frank, is there, I don't know how to ask this question exactly. It's kind of a complicated one. Um, this question of a modern state um, and the, let's say, the tension that it exists in with uh, with democracy. I mean, to you know, you even said yourself, uh, you know, you'd prefer that that political appointees get dropped down to um, to less than possible. That's an advocacy of a certain kind of more technocratic approach uh, to governance, and that's something that has, for a very long time been something that's rested very uneasily on sort of the American psyche, I would say, um, even though to your point, I mean, we have modernized, we're no longer the, the country that Andrew Jackson ruled over. Um, is there, how do I put it? Are there virtues to American, uh, you know, American sort of uh, objections and sort of putting the brakes on that kind of technocracy. Shadi and I always talk about, for example, you know, comparing the United States and Europe, and we've had some fun on the podcast, sort of um, riffing on 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 uh, Matty Glacius, who's recently been, you know, traveling to Europe and uh, ironically posting, you know, how much worse Europeans off are than Americans, and you know, sort of having fun with that. But but to a certain extent, there is a, a, a sort of a a a very different cultural approach to, to governance and the modern state between Europe and the United States, which, I mean, maybe you disagree with that. Is there, is there any virtue to having that tension be more pronounced in the American sense, uh, in the American system, or is it all downside? Well, well just to add, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, go ahead. I was go just going to add, add to that because, uh, to put my cards on the table, I mean, my instinct is to be skeptical of moving towards a more technocratic model. Um, the European, what, what European countries tend to do, um, and you know, one could argue that part of the reason we're in the crisis we are is a sense that the government and the bureaucracy is not responsive. That there is a so-called large administrative state that is unelected and unaccountable. Um, and if we do identify that as one of the grievances that not just folks on the right have, but also some on the left, um, then we're almost, you know, returning to a same problem, a similar problem of what people perceive to be the lack of representation and responsiveness. And I mean, this gets to, I think, a bigger, deeper question of, if we want to address the crisis of democracy and liberalism that we're facing, maybe we really have to go back to the foundations instead of thinking about um, solutions that we've already tried or that Europe has already tried in a very different cultural context. Well, I just got done writing a really comprehensive uh, review article on the question of bureaucratic autonomy, uh, which is really about exactly this question, right? That any organization from your local garden club up to the US federal government has to delegate authority to, you know, 
through a hierarchy. Uh, you know, in theory, uh, the, the theory is pretty clear in a democracy. Uh, the people through their voting uh, are the principles and everybody in the government hierarchy is an agent that simply carries out the will of the people. So nobody would contest that normatively. But, you know, in a highly complex modern uh, society, uh, you know, you have to do a lot of delegation because there's simply a lack of capacity. I mean, you know, you think about the kind of knowledge of the financial system that you need to have if you're running the New York Fed, right? That's the money market Fed that deals directly uh, with all the money center banks and keeps, you know, the plumbing for that going. Or you think about NASA or, you know, um, uh, any number of technical agencies that are responsible for really the bulk of what the U.S. government does. The idea that somehow politicians can have the expertise to, uh, you know, decide how many parts per million, you know, so there's a list of 2,000 toxic chemicals, how many parts per million uh, is an acceptable level of pollution for each of those 2,000, right? So no elected official is ever going to do that. So you've got to uh, you've got to delegate. However, if you start asking the question where and when and to what extent do you delegate, uh, it becomes a very complicated question. And there, I think it really depends on a contextual knowledge of who is doing the delegating and to whom are you delegating. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the capacity of the delegatees, the agents, right? And so um, if you have uh, agents that are self-interested, uh, corrupt themselves, or uh, you know, not qualified to do the job, then you want to have much stricter political control over them, right? An extreme example of this was the Japanese Navy and Army in the 1930s that basically, you know, <laughs> undertook uh, to rewrite Japanese foreign policy at the expense of all of the uh, elected politicians. Um, and you have, you know, plenty of examples of the administrative state doing stuff in certain uh, specific areas. I would say actually the Title IX stuff uh, that Shep Melnick has written about is probably the best example of that, where, you know, all of the sexual harassment policy that's come out of the Department of Education uh, over the last 50 years has really not been done under the Administrative Procedure Act, you know, where you have certain democratic controls. It's actually been written by uh, by bureaucrats, and that's a that's a great example of a kind of out of control uh, administrative state that is basically making policy with very little democratic oversight. Right, so that's uh, one case of it. But on the other hand. Uh, you have the opposite, where the principles, meaning the political principles, members of Congress or people in the White House, are themselves venal, corrupt, ignorant, um, uh, self-interested, and it's the bureaucrats that are, you know, the bulwark uh, against this. And I think that, you know, the pandemic gives you kind of examples of both of these, you know, that there were places where you really did not want the political principles, you know, just pulling health policy out of their ass because it was politically convenient for them to do this. I won't name any names there, but I think, you know, you can you can think of plenty of examples of that. 
On the other hand, the CDC made a lot of mistakes also. It was too rigid. It didn't, uh, uh, it didn't really do a good job communicating why it was uh, laying out the policies. And so that's a place where a little bit more political control would have been desirable. And so I think it's just wrong to take a principled view on this. In a certain way, you have to do this almost agency by agency, because in some cases, you actually do want to trust, uh, you know, the technocrats to make the right decisions. Uh, you know, that's why we've gone for central bank independence all across the developed world, because in the days when politicians were determining interest rates, it was a big disaster. Uh, right. And that's an area where you really need a lot of technocratic capacity to even you know, begin to make policy. But there are other areas like this Title IX stuff where I think that actually democratic majorities really ought to have the right to shape policy and they have not been given that right uh, given the way the bureaucracies develop. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I, I just think that complicated issue uh, and you have to look at it contextually. You know, you have to see where is it okay to delegate and where is it not okay and make adjustments within a much more kind of informed framework about what it is your government uh, is, is actually doing. And I think that, you know, technocracy is maybe a smaller set of a bigger question and we can maybe turn to that now. Um, it's a subset, if you will, of a broader discussion around the problem of liberalism, and maybe I would put problem in quotation marks, because obviously some people think it's a problem and some people think it's a solution. And you recently wrote um, an important book about precisely this issue, and we would encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy. We'll include a link in the show notes. It's called Liberalism and Its Discontents. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, I mean, obviously uh, you make the case for liberalism as a solution, but I should clarify that when you talk about liberalism, you're talking about a more minimalist liberalism, what you call classical liberalism. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to what extent you're, you would acknowledge that aspects of liberalism itself have gotten us to our current point, because at, at some level, um, classical liberals or those who come out of the liberal tradition in the center right and the center left have been in power for most of the last God knows how long, really until Donald Trump, the first, if you will, um, illiberal American president in quite some time. So we had these people in charge. They were liberals or they would describe themselves as such. But something went fundamentally wrong. So I'm curious that if we're if we're diagnosing and we're saying that liberalism is the solution, to what extent do you think liberalism was also the problem? Well, I think uh, this is kind of the main theme of my book is that what happened over the last 50 years were uh, distortions uh, or deformations of classical liberalism that occurred both on the right and on the left. On the right, it was the evolution of, you know, the prior economic liberalism into something that's now called neoliberalism. You know, it's basically the rise of the University of Chicago free market economics that 
really understood uh, markets to be the solution to every social problem uh, and that demonized the state and, you know, wanted to cut it back. And that the problems that you're seeing in terms of, you know, big uh, economic inequality, all of the instability uh, produced, you know, in financial markets that have led to millions of Americans losing their homes because of the subprime crisis, this sort of thing, are not due to a kind of older version of liberalism that understood that the state had an important both protective and regulatory function, but it really had to do with the extension of, you know, this kind of neoliberal ideology uh, into areas where it really wasn't important. You know, in developing countries, you know, World Bank pushing for the privatization of water utilities in, you know, in places where there's a natural monopoly over over water and just, you know, so these things just didn't just didn't work. The um, the distortion or the deformation of liberalism on the left really had to do with uh, kind of the apotheosis of, you know, so liberalism is about protecting moral autonomy, right? It, 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 it is according people dignity based on their ability to make moral choices. And, you know, the real context of classical liberalism was that those choices be made within an accepted common uh, moral framework. But under the, under the, I don't know, um, guidance of philosophers like uh, John Rawls and, you know, others uh, in that tradition, autonomy kind of became an end in itself in which um, you didn't want to accept any kind of social constraints on an individual's desire to choose, you know, their own self, their own actualization of what they believed, you know, was inside themselves in a way that then became either the basis for a kind of incoherent multiculturalism in which you really denied the possibility of sharing common values across a, a, a liberal society or kind of an attack on, you know, virtually any existing cultural framework, uh, particularly those offered by uh, traditional religions. And I think, you know, it's that extension of this idea of autonomy uh, to a point where it really begins to under undermine, you know, any kind of social solidarity that that form of that interpretation of liberalism uh, becomes very problematic. So all I'm doing is saying, you know, you should unwind both of these. Right, that the state plays a role in the economy and regulating it, and you got to admit that that's the case and figure out what the appropriate role is. You don't want to go back to excessive statism, but you know it's it's got a role to play. And conversely, I think you know people's moral intuitions are that they do have dignity because they can make choices, but that doesn't involve rejecting any existing moral framework because people do have to have common moral standards and values around which, uh, you know, a society is built. Uh, so I guess the, you know, the argument that has been made in criticism of my book is that classical liberalism inevitably turns into these two deformations, uh, you know, that liberalism just somehow inevitably uh, goes in one direction uh, towards ever increasing either economic autonomy or personal autonomy. And I'm not sure that that's correct. I mean, I, I do think that, uh, 
you're already seeing a retreat from some of the excesses of those understandings of liberalism and that you know there is a, a self-corrective mechanism that's uh, still available to us. So Frank, you know, this is one of those things that, that, I mean, sometimes I think it's because I, you know, I've only grown up in the United States. I wasn't born there, but I did come early enough. So it's probably not an excuse, but it struck me a lot reading your book. Um, it's, how do I put this? Um, it's the question of what grounds a polity. I mean, you deal with this to a certain extent in your previous book on identity, um, but it's 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 the the sort of uh, I think the question that always bedevils me when thinking about um, the United States. I think that that we actually uh, had Walter Mead on a couple of weeks ago as well about his book, and he actually has a passage in, in it where he also talks a little bit about growing up in in South Carolina and seeing feeling himself as just sort of you know I'm from here, you know, almost like a uh, a traditional, you know, European sense of belonging um, to America. And he said that he was, you know, in his youth struck by going to the Northeast and getting this kind of creedal sense of belonging to America, that it's a set of ideas rather than, than uh, an essential sort of thing. I think the echoes in the liberalism book for me um, are this question about whether liberalism itself is... Um, enough of a ground uh, to basically tether a society to. I guess my question is, A, do you think it is? And maybe B, is it something that, is liberalism sort of the special sauce that, that keeps America together? Or is it too thin and sort of, you know, more instrumental to making America work, but not necessarily the glue that keeps it together? Well, I think it's uh, it's critical. It is a glue, but it's not enough by itself. Uh, this is actually a point that Yasha and I both agree with. Uh, you know that you do have this creedal understanding of American national identity that's built around um, that's built around liberalism itself and liberal values, a constitution, rule of law, and so forth. And I do think that that has to be the starting point, not just for American national identity, but for the identity in any, you know, um, uh, modern diverse, you know, de facto diverse uh, liberal democracy, uh, what Habermas called Verfassungspatriotismus, constitutional patriotism is a starting point, but it's also the case that it's probably not enough. Uh, it doesn't have the kind of emotional grip that you know, a thicker, um, more traditional cultural understanding of identity uh, has. And therefore, you have to deliberately create uh, those cultural symbols that are sufficiently inclusive that they actually will be accessible to the de facto diversity of the people that live in your society, but also emotionally powerful enough that people who really care about them. Uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the kinds of identities that are not acceptable in a liberal society are those that are based on, on um, you know, fixed uh, uh, attributes like race, ethnicity, gender, right? Viktor Orban says that a Hungarian 
is is somebody that's ethnically Hungarian, which means that John von Neumann, Edward Teller, you know, Leo Szilard would not have been Hungarians, even though they grew up in Budapest and went to a Hungarian gymnasium because they're Jews and they're not ethnic Hungarians, right? That's not acceptable. Um, uh, but it also means that you probably need uh, a kind of thickening uh, in a cultural sense uh, of, you know, what people hold in common. And that's actually an area for nation builders, right? There's a distinction between state building and nation building. State building is creating the visible formal institutions of a society. The nation building part really has to do with devising narratives and, you know, common symbols that people can look to when they ask themselves, who am I? Where am I going? What do I hold uh, in common with other people? And, you know, in some countries that can be language. So French identity since the revolution has really been built around the French language. I think that that's actually compatible with liberalism uh, because anyone can actually learn to speak French. Um, it wouldn't work in the Balkans where you come from, uh, Demir, <laughs> because you've got all of these historical, and, and it wouldn't work in many parts of the Middle East uh, where you really do have linguistic minorities that have been living in the same territory for centuries and have their own languages and very thick cultural ties. I mean, for that, you really need a different understanding of identity. I mean, but, you know, but in places where, you know, language can be a unifying uh, factor, uh, you know, that's one thing. But there are other symbols. I mean, even something like sports can be uh, something that people build, uh, uh, you know, common identity around. So if you watched if you watch the Ken Burns film on baseball, it's actually very interesting because baseball itself was conceived of as a nation-building exercise. After the Civil War, the Southern states, you know, were readmitted to the Union after 1876. And there was a feeling on the part of a lot of elites that there needed to be something to get people's mind off of the conflict, you know, off of all the death and the bitterness uh, that had been created. And, you know, it was in that spirit that they said, well, you know, if we have a national game that everybody can play, uh, you know, that would help. And indeed, baseball then became, you know, part of what it meant to be an American. So like in World War II movies, you know, if you suspected a, somebody of being a German spy, you said, okay, who won the 1942 Olymp uh, you know, World Series? And if they couldn't answer, then they're clearly not an American, mm -hmm. right? Uh, now, unfortunately, that common narrative and that common sense of, you know, who we are as Americans has deteriorated. I think that uh, the constitutional, liberal, creedal identity was more powerful than you may be willing to give it credit for. I, I think that you see this very powerfully, like... So, Demir, you, you were not born in the United States? I was not. No, I was born so in Yugoslavia. So you had to be naturalized as a citizen? Correct. Yeah, okay. So you went through a naturalization ceremony. One of the most moving things I've ever experienced. I, yeah, I, I exactly. always say that. That's it's incredible. Exactly. No, that's, it's an incredible that is a, Yeah. 
that is exactly the point I wanted to make. Like in Europe, if you get naturalized as a Dutch or a German citizen, it's it's no big deal. You just go to some government office and they sign you up, right? Yeah. Yep. But in in the United States, it's an extremely moving ceremony because you take the naturalization oath, you pledge allegiance to the flag. There's an honor guard. You know, sometimes a politician comes to greet all these people, and it's really quite moving when. You know, somebody from Iran and Guatemala, Croatia, you know, they all say, okay, I'm an American now. And I think one of the big achievements of the United States was that after the civil rights movement, you could actually say, I'm an American in the way that a Turk growing up in Germany could not say, I'm a German, right? I mean, it just doesn't sound right. It Culturally, that that doesn't, that doesn't work. But in America you could actually do that uh, if you're a non-white person coming from, you know, very distant part of the world, because there was this understanding of what it meant to be an American that was based on, you know, that naturalization oath and pledging allegiance to this set of values. And then if you also like baseball on top of that, all the better, you know, it gave you some, but I guess just to back up, that is a thin sense of identity compared to almost any other less diverse, more, you know, historically rooted society, it is a thin identity. And I think it's been getting thinner with every passing year as we've gotten more polarized and we no longer agree on what that common historical narrative is that we want to teach our children. You know, you know, Frank, I, that's it. I'm glad you brought that, that, that up. I honestly, I haven't thought of that moment probably in the last Two or so years, but I, I I talk about it fairly frequently. That it really is a uh, it really is one of those things that I'll I'll always remember. It and it's exactly as you described it. You're in a room full of of people from all over the world. It's a simple ceremony. It's it's uh, but it's it's deep. It feels deep. It's 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 uh, solemn and joyous at the same time. Really, it it really is special. Which, but even now, just thinking back to it, that's the maybe the part that. I'm struggling with in trying to uh, maybe imagine about what's going wrong. And it's, and again, maybe it's my, as you said, my, my, my Balkan heritage uh, watching what's happening in the United States in a lot of ways um, has me searching for maybe European analogs for some of this stuff. And then maybe also looking to questions of, you know, even that moment, um, of course, packed into it is all of the promise of America and that I would say liberalism brings, including that, that sense of personal um, liberty and that you, you know, you have the, the opportunity that it, that it affords you. And yet I'm struck with all of these debates. Um, and even with, with the, you know, the, 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 the sort of rampant criticism of liberalism that's coming, you know, uh, certainly harder from the right at this point, but you see it in some quarters of the left as well. This this kind of sense of, I don't know, that it's not that it's just not enough, but that something's gone weirdly wrong with it. And, and you know, let me just sort of back up a little bit on the on the European example. You you mentioned uh, Jurgen Habermas and and sort of that approach to, you know, the public square. I think a lot of the the vision and I, I wouldn't say it's neoliberalism in your telling, but it's a kind of liberalism that 
I would say has infused the European Union as a project. And there's something about the lack of legitimacy to it on the European stage that is fueling a lot of the reaction within the European Union. And so that to me is seems to be, maybe that's a, a bad mental map on my part, but I see that. I see the rise of, of the Kaczynskis and the Orbans in Europe. I see how they weaponize the perceived and felt illegitimacy of certain liberal moves in Europe. And then I, I look back at the United States and I see parallels to that. And I wonder, that's, that's what I'm grappling with when I look at the United States. I mean, where am I, where am I going wrong on this? No, I think that's basically correct. I think that if, you know, if the United States has a thin national identity when compared to, uh, you know, the Netherlands or Norway or Italy, um, the European Union as a union has an even shallower identity, right? Because at least in the United States, we've got an army, we've got a single, you know, uh, set of institutions that are pretty powerful across the whole domain of politics. Whereas in Europe, you know, you got, I don't know, what is it, 27 veto points now for anything done in common in foreign policy. And I think, you know, it's really not powerful. I mean, this is my feeling about the EU all along is that it's too strong uh, in certain places and way too weak in others, right? So it's strong enough to be really annoying when it's telling you that you can't sell your particular kind of cheese without labeling it a certain way. Uh, but it's also too weak because, you know, there's no common foreign policy, there's no common fiscal policy, uh, there's no kind of common educational um, system that is really the way that all nation builders, you know, essentially establish a uh, national identity. In our case, you know, I we had all of those things, but this is where what's happened in the last few years, I think, has been so destructive. And, you know, the left really bears uh, a lot of the blame for this uh, as well. You know, the problem with the 1619 narrative is basically that, you know, it's saying essentially there's been no progress in the United States, you know, that the that the liberal pretensions of the country have never been realized. And if you think they have been, then you're simply duped, you know, by a system that's kind of been racist and phony uh, at its core, uh, which I think is just empirically wrong and uh, also just destructive of the idea of, of a national uh, of a national identity. Uh, and then that sets off, you know, the people on the right that uh, then take the most exaggerated form of that narrative and then try to whitewash, you know, all the bad things that really did happen in American history as opposed to what I thought was the narrative that I grew up with, you know, again, after the civil rights era, that said, yeah, we are a deeply flawed country. We had this original sin uh, of slavery that continued into Jim Crow and segregation, but there's been progress over the years and the America, uh, you know, of, I don't know, 1972 is not the uh, America of 1872 or 1772. And that's kind of something that we've been losing ground on because now it's not clear what, you know, I mean, you're going to get a different narrative taught 
uh, in a red state as, as opposed to a blue state and the divergence between those narratives, I think is probably getting uh, bigger. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that, yeah, we always were thin, there always was something missing, and even that common glue is beginning to, you know, to separate. It's interesting to me that both of you have described American identity as thin, and maybe it is thin, but, but I would also say that it is intense and deeply felt in a way that I haven't necessarily seen in Europe. Now, I don't have a naturalization story. I'm born and raised here, but my parents do as immigrants. And um, I think that I was able to watch them become American and to feel very protective of the American idea. And that is not something, Frank, as you alluded to, that you necessarily see in Europe. It's it's hard for a Turk to become fully German, but it is possible and even quite likely for an Arab or a Muslim from Egypt to become fully American and not just to become American, but to feel it intensely. So uh, that, but that I think, but it's interesting that I don't think my parents would necessarily say that that was about liberalism per se, although of course the American idea relates to liberalism in some sense, but this brings me, I think, to something I wanna make sure we get at because I think it really is at the heart of the issue of how does liberalism manifest itself in real life. We've talked about it a lot, but I think that part of the problem with this debate is that there's a lack of precision. So I, as you said in one of your earlier um, responses, Frank, that what we see now is actually a, a deformation of liberalism. But I think one concern with that is, are there actually any classically liberal states that we can point to and say, well, yes, liberalism can stay classically liberal. I, I think that, as you mentioned in the case of countries like Germany, um, these are not necessarily classically liberal in how they treat minorities or how they see their own national identity, which still has an ethnic conception. Um, you know, even if it's not legally enshrined. So, you know, I look at Western Europe, I look at the U.S., and I don't see any models of classical liberalism for me to latch onto. So then, then we have an issue where we have liberalism as an ideal that we want to strive for, and then liberalism as it actually exists in the world. And not to draw an equivalence, but I, you know, I sometimes people make the argument that, well, you know, socialism was never properly tried or Islamism wasn't properly tried. If only we could go to the good version of this. And um, and I think I'm curious what you would what you would say to that, because um, we can never I, we can never really get to the ideal of an ideology. And I think that liberalism in some ways is an ideology, but if it's not, then maybe that changes the conversation. But I think that to me, when I listen to the post-liberals, I think that is at the heart of their critique. And I don't know, I'm, I just, you know, I'm a, I consider myself still a classical liberal, but one who is very critical of what liberalism has become. And I don't know 
if I have any faith that we can actually return to some classically liberal idea, which makes me more sympathetic to some of the post-liberal critiques, because I, they may have a point on this, maybe not on other other things. Um, There's a lot there, I know. So, I mean, yeah. Well, you know, it does strike me that there are plenty of examples of what I would regard as classically liberal societies that seem to be working. And I think, you know, the United States in many ways was that, uh, again, in the post-civil rights era, when a lot of the problems were, you know, the, the formal inequities in our system were finally, you know, taken seriously uh, and addressed. And then, you know, there was an effort at social policy to equalize outcomes, you know, more seriously. Uh, I think that in Europe, you do have uh, pretty successful liberal societies. Uh, again, you know, I mean, this deserves a kind of separate discussion, but, you know, France always struck me as in a way, uh, a classically liberal society that in certain ways managed to stay that way because they do have a, you know, obviously there's racism and discrimination there, uh, but at least formally, they do have an ideal of Republican citizenship that's built around kind of French language and culture. And if you accept it, you know, it will accept, uh, uh, it will accept you in a way that, you know, you, you couldn't really get away with in Germany or in uh, Scandinavia. Australia, New Zealand, Canada are all deeply liberal societies that are, in fact, um, more diverse than you know, in the United States, at least if you look at the percentages of non, non-native born people in those societies. And they, you know, although they have been infected by some of the identity politics of America, I don't think they're as far gone, you know, down that road. And so the idea that they could just hang on to that is it seems to me is not uh, uh, you know is not a is not a crazy idea. Um, in terms of the neoliberalism, that can be turned back instantly. I mean, in fact, Biden has already turned a lot of it back. He's brought the state back in, you know, industrial policy and social protection and so forth. Um, the, the deeper question, I think, is whether in the identity politics, you can roll things back to a point where you have a, you know, thicker, sense of common identity that is also more respected than it is right now because at the moment you know i think that there is this uh, you know this kind of contempt that a lot of progressives have for the idea you know the kind of traditional that traditional sense of you know uh, americanness that both of you have uh, have described uh, but even there i think you know i i could foresee futures in which uh, you do get back to something a little bit more, a little bit more sensible. But I admit, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't know that for a fact. Uh, and, you know, it may be harder than, than I think. Frank, if I could push you on France, because I think it gets to, a, a, you know, a broader issue. Uh, I, I would argue that France France does subscribe to a particular conception of the good. It's an ideological state with a very distinct ideology, uh, an aggressive form of 
secularism, as you know, called laicite. And um, that, to me, is an illiberal ideology because it puts pressure on a certain group of citizens, or actually more than one group, if we want to include maybe, um, you know, some conservative Catholics as well, that they can't be, they have to get on board with um, a particular conception of the good. So the French state believes that there is a better way to live, a better way to be. And if you don't get on board, you are not going to be treated as fully French. And I think as, as far as I know, and I think you do emphasize this in your book, that if we're talking about classical liberalism, an important part of it is to suspend judgment on ends, on final ends, that there shouldn't, the liberal state should be agnostic in theory about the good life or what is ultimately good. Um, but, but others would say that liberalism inherently is ideological, so it pretends to be neutral when it actually never is. In any of its manifestations, there is always a conception of the good that is hovering underneath the surface. Um, so I'm just curious how you would reflect on that if we do in fact take liberalism to be agnostic on the good life. Well, I think, you know, classical liberalism is not endlessly agnostic. Uh, I think other things, you know, it has to believe in its own principles. Uh, you know, for example, one of the most fundamental principles underlying liberalism is an assertion of, you know, underlying human equality that is universal, that there are not natural distinctions between classes of people that distinguish certain ones and put certain ones, you know, above others. Uh, and that, you know, in, you know, in the French case has really come to the fore, you know, with the treatment of women. Um, so I would, so I would say that, you know, the, the, the French state since the revolution, it's true has, has projected a certain understanding of the good that is much more anti-clerical. You know, they, they didn't have the American conception of religious liberty in which your ability to practice the religion of your choice was what was protected, but that, you know, religiosity per se was, was part of what it meant to be a free individual. So that was part of the liberal formula. But then you how know, is the that French... classically liberal in that case? Because if there isn't freedom of religion as a core component, and, you know, let's say women aren't allowed to wear the headscarf in state institutions or some well, okay, levels so, of schooling. So, so the, you know, the French uh, view was not, you know, was in a sense to place secularism above religion as such. I mean, the laïcité in the French system was really initially directed against the Catholic Church because that had been the big enemy uh, of the um, of the state. Uh, and, you know, that's what the revolution wanted to stamp out. But after the Concordat in 1805, you know, it came to terms with the uh, with the state. And it is not, you know, the French state really has not been militantly anti-clerical ever since then. I mean, it, it permits freedom of worship. Uh, it did, you know, have a headscarf ban. They're trying to do this in Quebec, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, as well. But that, it just seems to me, is not, 
the imposition of a certain, um, you know, thick religious doctrine on people, you know, it's actually done in the interest of actually preserving the liberty of women who, you know, by the by the people that were pushing the headscarf ban, you know, their argument was that this was not wearing the headscarf was not a, a something freely chosen by the women themselves as autonomous individuals. This is something that was being imposed by the communities in which they live. Now, you, you can argue with that. And I, I know that there are plenty of Muslim women that completely freely want to do that. And, you know, in that respect, they're not being allowed to be autonomous. But, you know, that is one of those complicated things where you're actually not imposing a, a certain view of the world other than that underlying liberal assertion of human equality. And you're pushing back against uh, a culture that, you know, has historically not treated women uh, equally. Now, you can argue about that, whether that's true or not, but, you know, you could also defend the headscarf ban um, as, you know, something actually that was in line with certain liberal principles. And so, so I guess that's the way I would, uh, I would argue it. So, so Frank, here, here's, I think this gets at, um, it's, it's something you get in the book in, in the closing chapters. Uh, you talk about, you know, how to rescue liberalism, uh, how to refurbish it, how to revitalize it, how to bring it back to this, uh, this classical thing. We've also talked about, you know, again, this question of, you know, the polity and what 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 makes it coherent. And one of the, the points you make is about subsidiarity and basically devolution of competencies down. Um, in this discussion about laicite, for example, it strikes me that this sort of is illustrative of, of I think, one of the, the the traps and one of the the pulls and maybe one of the, the the pitfalls of liberalism is its pretension to universality. And it seems to be always in the tension, in tension with this concept of community. And I'm not talking like a leftist here about, you know, uh, necessarily community identities and and the importance of group identity over the individual. I take your point that, you know, um, in the individual's autonomy on some level in the liberal canon needs to be pretty high up there. But, you know, reading that last part of the book and, and thinking through a lot of the stuff that's happening in the United States, we were talking about the European Union before. Is there something to this fact that there are certain polities that are too big and too diverse to be able to basically, uh, you know, that where 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 these tensions actually get to a point of actually raising the temperature rather than lowering? You made the point that liberalism' greatest uh, achievement in many ways was you know, going back to the English Civil War and then Locke was basically to lower the temperature, to make to make places more governable. But it seems to me on a certain extent that we're what we're facing at this point is states that are so big that encompass such diverse polities that one needs to be able to push a lot of this decision-making, even on questions such as, you know, religious freedom, things like laicite, that those things maybe don't belong at the level of a state the size of France. And then you could draw all sorts of parallels for other questions that really shouldn't be litigated at the national level, even in the United States, that that maybe for liberalism to succeed, it needs to allow for levels of 
community illiberalism, perhaps, at a much more granular level? I don't know if that's overstating it, but I don't know. What do you think about yeah. that? Uh, so, sure. I mean, you know, the liberal universalist uh, doctrine has never been pushed, uh, even in the United States, you know, to an extreme. And so religious communities have been given a fair amount of latitude, you know, the Mormons and the Amish and, you know, Orthodox Jews. I mean, all of these communities put restrictions on the behavior of their um, young people that are not fully, that, that are in tension with, you know, this liberal view of individual autonomy, universal individual autonomy. And there's actually a lot of jurisprudence on this question, like, can you force an Amish young person to into the military if their, you know, religion, uh, you know, makes them pacifist? And by and large, uh, you know, as I understand it, uh, you know, the, the courts have, have actually, you know, ruled in favor of tolerance of this kind of communal um, uh, standards, uh, except when they seem to really be undermining the individual liberty of particular groups. And so, you know, religious sect is not allowed to discriminate racially or, well, I don't know. I Actually, I, I shouldn't make assertions because I don't know the law. Because obviously, you know, like Orthodox Jews do segregate men and women and that's something that's tolerated by, you know, by American law. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that you cannot be too rigid about this stuff. And there are many societies in which liberalism simply doesn't work. Um, I remember being in South Africa uh, a couple of years after the transition. Um, I'm thinking about this because I've just read Eve Fairbanks' book, *The Inheritors*. You should have her on your podcast. We had we had really... we had lunch with her recently. Actually, we we absolutely yeah. intend to. Yeah, she's terrific. Yeah, it's really a it's really a brilliant book. But I remember being in South Africa, and you know, kind of at that point, it was my first visit or second visit or something, and you know, I talked about this liberal ideal of kind of universal human dignity and. It was actually F.W. de Klerk who was in the seminar who said, well, you know, in a place like South Africa, that just isn't going to work because your racial identity is so fundamental. It affects, you know, really who you are in such a deep way that it's just a complete myth to think that, um, you know, everybody is a kind of equal individual that makes their own way and you know, that those racial identities really should be secondary because they're not. And I would say, you know, you go to a place like Bosnia, right? Uh, you're, you're simply, you're never going to get to a point where people think of themselves as kind of indifferent human beings that all have equal rights rather than, you know, deeply rooted communities uh, uh, and so forth. And I guess my attitude towards that is that it's kind of a matter of pragmatic adjustment, you know, Liberalism is supposed to bring social peace. If insisting on kind of homogeneity in the way that people treat other people within, you know, these well-established communities is actually 
causing more discord than it is buying peace, then stop doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. And in some societies, you know, Lebanon is a good example, or Bosnia is another one. Liberalism just doesn't work. You know, you really do have to move to this kind of consociational agreement as a kind of minimal way of buying peace where you simply allocate rights to different communal groups uh, so that they won't kill each other. And even then, it doesn't work so well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that you do have to be flexible in the way you apply these principles. So Demir asked about um, illiberalism on the community level. You know, I'm curious about illiberalism and how we should deal with it in a practical sense on the national level. So, and that applies even to our own country, that if we do have a Republican party that is plainly illiberal or anti-liberal or whatever it might be, then how do we draw the limits and uh, how does that even work? I mean, I think that somewhere in your book, you make the point that liberalism at some basic level requires actual liberals. If you reach a threshold, and I'm not sure where that threshold would be, but at some threshold, if not enough people are actual classical liberals themselves, it becomes very hard to sustain liberalism, which I think is different than what at least some scholars have said about democracy, where you can have democracy without Democrats, but you can't necessarily have liberalism uh, without liberals. So if we get to that point as Americans where most of us are not committed to the liberal idea, then what do we do about that exactly? Um, Do we give up on that as an objective? Do we try to ban parties that are patently illiberal? Uh, well, uh, given that you got a two-party system, that would be pretty hard to ban a Republican <laughs> yeah. party. Um, so, uh, so I think the threat on the right and the left are quite different. The only way to beat back the illiberal threat on the right, which basically means now the Republican Party, is to beat them in an election. Uh, and this gets back to what I was saying at the beginning of this conversation, that I believe the Democrats could actually do that if they would move to the actual center of the country rather than trying to find the center of their own party. Uh, I I don't really see any way of, you know, uh, negating that threat because I don't think violence or, you know, kind of acting extra constitutionally is really the way to go. Uh, Liberalism on the left is a more complicated uh, and, and tricky thing because I do think it's a real threat. Uh, and you know, the liberalism that I see takes the following form. A liberal, a classical liberal is committed to tolerance, right? This idea that not everybody is going to agree with you. And as long as they do not prevent you from exercising your autonomy, you're not gonna get in the way of their doing what, uh, you know, uh, what they want. I think that many progressives don't accept that. And you see this in a lot of these civil rights issues having to do with race, gender, gender identity, and so forth, where, and, and this comes up, you know, exactly in the Title IX enforcement, that at a certain point it was, you know, understood to be sufficient, you know, in something like sexual assault, that you define what sexual assault is and you punish cases where people are guilty of that. 
right? That what you're trying to do is punish individual behavior. Uh, if people had the wrong attitudes underlying that behavior, but they didn't act on it, and this applies to race as well. Uh, you know, you've got racist feelings on the inside, but you don't discriminate. You know, you let a black person stay in your motel, eat in your restaurant. You you know, you treat them the same as everybody else. Then the state says, okay, that's fine. You know, as long as you don't misbehave in 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 these overt ways. But I think that a lot of progressives have gone beyond that to say, no, we actually care about what you believe. Uh, and that's what a lot of the Title IX stuff has tried to do is to actually, you know, force um, uh, educational institutions to basically not simply patrol behavior, but to actually, uh, you know, regulate thought. And this, you know, gets into both procedural violations of due process, but also conflicts with the basic liberal principle of freedom of speech, where, you know, expressing what's regarded as a sexist statement is, you know, per se regarded as a, you know, as, as, uh, as harassment, as opposed to simply reflecting, you know, a tolerable degree of um, uh, individual opinion. And that's really where a lot of the violations of liberal principles have occurred. And then when they occur, conservatives pick up on that and say, see, you know, these people really are totalitarians um, that don't believe in individual freedom. And I have to say, in some of these cases, that's actually true, you know, that uh, liberal societies are not about making everybody think the same thing uh, in their heart of hearts, it's actually making them behave in ways that do not violate the rights of other people. And as long as they do that, you know, that should be enough. But but it's plausible that, let's say we, you know, I was going to say we don't win, but yes, I mean, Democrat, if Democrats don't win, not just in 2024, but in subsequent elections, we could face the possibility of an illiberal party winning successive elections and they may in fact respect the democratic process i mean i can imagine a situation where ron DeSantis becomes the the sort of leader of the republican party and you know maybe you know hopefully he's not as anti-democratic as donald trump is and he's able to win and we have a situation where illiberalism starts to be fairly and accurately reflected through the democratic process in a number of different elections, then we have a bit a bit of a dilemma. But I suppose it's in some basic sense, like the toleration dilemma, toleration paradox, and that applies also to the hyper woke. It's a question of where do we draw the line? And the, the hyper woke would probably say, why should we tolerate intolerance? And that is also what classical liberals say, but they draw the line in a much more minimalist way. But the principle, it could be argued, is similar. Yeah, uh, but again, in order to prevent that right-wing scenario where they take over, it seems to me the only way you're going to prevent it is by not letting them win these elections. Um, if they do win legitimately, not through gerrymandering and not through... Uh, manipulating the electoral process, but they actually do win because 
they got a majority of the vote and then the majority of people want to dismantle liberalism. I don't know what you do at that point to defend it. That's a, you know, that's a real problem. And that's why I think you got to focus on winning elections under our current rules, which means not piling up votes in California and New York and Chicago, but actually in swing states where, you know, future presidents are uh, determined. Uh, and I think, you know, Democrats have a long way to go before they get to that point where they can do that effectively. Uh, Frank, sort of to wrap up, um, maybe to take a step back and, and, and look at the, the more global picture. Um, I mean, with the war in Ukraine, uh, I think the, the sort of the conventional wisdom is, is that, you know, it's unified the West. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of problems ahead this winter, especially here in Europe. It feels particularly grim right now. Um, but, uh, you know, that there's a certain kind of sense of common purpose. I believe uh, at American Purpose, you may have written an essay along the lines of basically, you know, uh, this is an opportunity to sort of revitalize uh, a lot of this stuff. Are you optimistic overall that a lot of these uh, subtrends that we've been discussing for the last hour and a half uh, about liberalism, about democratic decline in leading uh, Western countries um, could perhaps be uh, slowed? Uh, do the lessons that you know you're 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 giving here to to Americans basically win elections? Uh, are those lessons being heeded uh, elsewhere in Europe, and are they as effective elsewhere across the West? Um, I mean, I'm also just thinking. You know, uh, I just read a, an article by uh, you mentioned South Africa earlier. There was an article by Gideon Rockman in the FT like about a week ago, saying about how how bad the situation is there, but as you said yourself, maybe that doesn't apply exactly to the model that we're discussing here. Overall, do you feel that 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 um, there is a turnaround story here after all these year after, years after years of uh, Freedom House reports of just uh, democracy on decline, liberal democracy on decline? Yeah, of course. I mean, there can always be a turnaround. Uh, I think that illiberal regimes do not in the end deliver. Uh, it may take a while for people to recognize that you know, if the, if the EU could get serious about its solidarity funds and not give them to Hungary, uh, Orban is already in trouble, you know, because Hungarian inflation rate is going up. He spent way too much money trying to get reelected last April. Uh, it's not sustainable. And it's really only the EU that's kind of kept him alive. Uh, and so there could be, you know, uh, an undermining of, uh, uh, of his support. The bigger models, I mean, Russia really does not look good. And uh, I still believe that the entire, you know, Russian military position in the south of Ukraine could collapse uh, before the end of the year. And if it does, Putin is going to look like an even bigger fool than he, you know, he does now. Uh, Xi Jinping does not look good, you know, with zero COVID. Uh, and now they're being hit by electricity shortages, drought. I mean, all of these things are basically going to throw China into probably a fairly nasty recession, which is then going to confront them with a situation that they've not had to deal with. So there's all sorts of stuff that could happen in the world that, you know, will give hope to the uh, partisans of, you know, human freedom and will show the authoritarians to be not such uh, effective, um, you know, uh, governing uh, people uh, as, as they would presume. So, 
you know, I would say way too early to give up. All right. Well, Frank, thanks so much. Uh, this was really good. Uh, hope to have you on, on again soon. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Thanks for joining us. 